0: Hi again everybody, welcome to Radio MVP Sports Podcast, episode number 139 of the Sports Podcast. I'm Tim and Anthony will not be joining us today as uh, we've been having trouble getting our schedules worked out this past couple of weeks. But we have two fantastic guests that are appearing on the podcast this week. First up is James Dotson. Uh, Obviously you know him from our basketball season with the red hurricane but more importantly this time of the year he is our Indy 500 expert as uh, him and his family has gone to Indianapolis uh, well over the last uh, 30 years uh, not counting last year where no one was able to go when they raced the 500 in August but this year there 140,000 fans can be in attendance and him and his family will be part of that contingent so it should be a great Memorial Day weekend and as always James has great information about uh, not just qualifying but the history of the Indy 500. So our second guest is Donnie Hess. He's the head coach of the Des Moines Roosters of the US AFL and we're going to talk some footy with him and talk about his involvement with the Roosters how he became a player and then later a coach get some information about the AFL this season and uh, his perspective on what's going on. A great conversation we had with uh, coach Donnie. So uh, you want to stay tuned for that too. So first up is James Dotson. So let me bring in uh, my basketball partner and our Indy 500 expert, James Dotson. Yes, it's that time of the year. And yes, it's time to bring in James Dotson. The Indy 500 is just a week away. Uh, Matter of fact, Time you guys download it it'll be the week of the indy 500 and uh james you're headed back out to indy uh what six days from today
1: uh, unbelievable yes finally going to be going back home again in indiana it's been a uh it's been a long time coming it feels like it, it uh it was sad to miss it last year no fans uh, at the brickyards for, for the biggest race uh, of the season uh, across the world 500 which was nice and but it's just still not the same with uh with uh without having the fans there so we're we're all excited we've been watching uh practicing qualifications all week long and uh just getting that itch to get back to uh the smell smell all the smells and hear all the sounds there at speedway indiana
0: yeah and it's 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 an amazing thing because uh we've spent the last 14 15 months uh kind of in a fan lockdown in sports, in this uh, in the past, well, I'd say, two, three weeks, we've seen it kind of all open up again, and uh, there is no restrictions coming up uh, for the 500.
1: Uh, there are still restrictions, Tim. It's uh, only going to be a 40% capacity, but 40% capacity still means there's over 140,000 tickets that will be sold uh, in the grandstands, which will make it by far the largest uh, single single day gathering uh, of any kind since the pandemic began and, and even with that 140,000 yeah 40 percent. so you're talking still yeah. multiple seats between everybody plenty of spacing um, th- just th- they've done such a great job uh, there in uh, Indianapolis to make sure this is going to run as smoothly as possible um, they're restricting infield access so basically um, I mean you used to be Normally right. you're talking 250,000 just in the stands, plus another probably 50 to hundred thousand that sit in the infield. Well, there's no infield seating this year, just basically to try to keep the teams separated from any fans coming in, just to have uh, no possible chance of any uh, crazy contact tracing that has to occur last minute, which is smart, just trying to keep them all separated, but still, uh, it won't be 300,000 of your closest fans, but 140,000 of them sure doesn't sound too bad either.
0: No, it doesn't. And that's like you said, might be the largest gathering in the world right now that we've, uh, we've seen. And it all starts at the pole position and uh, a familiar name gets there with St- Scott Dixon.
1: His fourth. That puts him second all time. He uh, tied Elio Castro Neves. And uh, I'll tell you what, for, for a guy who, I mean, he only has one win at Indianapolis, but it feels like he is always up there because he is always up there in the front. (laughs) A six-time series champ, he was winning uh, most of the race last year, got passed in the last 10 laps uh, by Takuma Sato and then maybe a bit of a hard luck yellow uh, right at the wrong time. Uh, Otherwise, we could have had a a pretty spectacular finish and I wouldn't have been surprised if uh, that PNC bank car was up front. But, you know, Scott Dixon, when we looked uh, at at the – uh, fast practice on Fast Friday there. He really never got a chance to get going, uh, never got a chance to get a full clean run. We didn't know what to expect. Well, he got lucky in that he got the first pick. He got the best conditions, and no surprise, he's the fastest on Saturday. You go to qualify Sunday, okay, now everything's the same. You're going with everybody else. How fast is he? He goes right out there and blows everyone out of the water and ends up getting the uh, the pole position. Uh, ended up being, I think, actually the third closest, actually, in the end uh, between first and second. Uh, Scott Dixon to Colton Herta, but uh, Scott Dixon Chip Ganassi Racing just uh, very very strong, uh, not only in qualifying, having all four of their cars in the top nine, uh, but after qualifying on Sunday, they had a, a, a final practice session. The Ganassi drivers were first, second, fourth, and fifth in that final practice and race trim setup as well. So uh, watch out for those Ganassi boys. I think this weekend is a, a very much uh, the obvious thing to say.
0: Yeah, well, Chip Ganassi. He- you know, let's face it, he's built his empire uh, in racing at Indianapolis and his uh, really his consistent success there and and making uh, really that part of his life. And, and same with the Andretti's. Let's be honest. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that name goes uh, hand in hand with Indianapolis and uh, the Andretti's racing uh, team is uh, also making a big push into the top 10.
1: Yeah, I mentioned uh, Colton Hurta ended up uh, second place uh, out of Andretti Autosport. Ryan hunter Ray really had a rough, rough week of practice, and then he found some speed uh, during qualifications. He's going to start seventh. Alexander Rossi just out of the fast nine and 10th. I mean, those three out of the top 10 tells you enough right there. James Hinchcliffe and uh, uh, Steph Wilson are rounding up the uh, the five guys in the Andretti uh, Autosport platform, and uh, Marco doing the one-off. He starts uh, further down in the field, but uh, all of them have been pretty strong um, th- through race sub- setup as well, especially Marco, who's starting 25th. He's looked very consistent in that race trim, which is something he hasn't had uh, as of late. But, I mean, we, we really got to look at uh, what this young guy, Colton Herter, can do because uh, he actually was getting some Formula One looks after he had a- an early win this year. He's only 21 years old, Tim. Wow. He-, he is an absolute stud. Um, and I think maybe the, uh, the thing you got to look at most, he races for his dad. Brian Herter is uh, yes. his father and his strategist. Let's see. He won as a team owner in 2011 with Dan Weldon, and he run it in uh, 2016 with Alexander Rossi. 2011, 2016. Uh, We're in 2021. That 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 five-year yeah. gap is uh, is setting up. It would not surprise me at all if uh, if the herd of combination ends up in victory lane.
0: Yeah, it seems to go that way too. Sometimes you just have <laughs> these these uh, cycles uh, where certain uh, racers and and companies have an opportunity to make their run and you can almost predict it like this is the time this is going to happen now with the pandemic still with restrictions and traveling and that uh how many or if has it really restricted the opportunity for any internationals to come to compete like a one race race off type scenario uh,
1: not not as bad as uh, as you might have expected now there was one driver for uh, carlin uh max chilton who was unable to get himself back in for the road course race. That was uh, this past weekend. So two weeks prior to the 500, um, they chose not to use a, a backup driver and just set up and get prepared fully for, uh, for the, the oval race for the 500, which I think ended up being a smart move uh, as they were fighting uh, tooth and nail down the stretch to make sure they got into uh, that top 30 uh, and not have to deal with the last row shootout on Sunday. But other than that, things were pretty good with that. And, uh, in all honesty, too, maybe this would have been the best year to maybe get some more of that international flair with the uh, Monaco Grand Prix happening this weekend and not on hundred day like it always is. Uh, in the end, the limiting factor in terms of getting more entries right now is uh, the engine manufacturers. Uh, Honda and Chevy do a great job. Um, but in the end, you got both that are supplying uh, 18 engines for 18 different teams, uh, 18 each, that is. Uh, for getting ready for the 500, you really can't get any more than those 35, 36 entries before you just can't do it anymore because the engine manufacturers can't keep up and make their quality product. So um, until you get a third manufacturer, which won't happen until you get the, uh, the new regulations coming up uh, in a couple of years. um, I think we're going to stay around this number of about 36, 37 competitors uh, fighting for the 33 spots. So this being two, uh, two guys getting bumped, uh, RC Anderson, who was on a team top gun racing that, uh, literally started from scratch less than a month ago. Put a car together straight out of a box less than a month ago, and actually was less than an hour off of uh, making it into the field. Uh, but that also shows you though what happens when uh, the other guy, Charlie Kimball, a member of a, another really AJ Foyt Racing, couldn't make it into the field this year. It, it just that's how Indianapolis sometimes you can have a a really strong team that ends up in the field. Really strong team. The field and even this, uh, Peretta Auto Sport, a, a team. Uh, what a great story! This be their driver, Simona Di Silvestro, the, uh, the lead uh, with Beth Peretta, a basically a female forward uh, organization that is like 90% uh, women in racing, uh, from the top engineers down to the tire changers and the driver as well. They're able to make it into the field while an AJ Foyt car. Uh, ends up on the outside looking in. just one of the many great storylines that you end up finding uh, when you go to the Indianapolis motor speedway.
0: And those are the stories that really stick out and, and really make a a moment in history and not just for the 500, but in sports in general. And it's great to see. I think if there's one sport that has been, I want to say easier, but more high profile for uh, either a female team or a female driver, uh, our athlete, I should say, to have that opportunity to compete at the top level, it has been in indie racing, and they have had it really through the '70s all the way through today. There's been times where they haven't had that opportunity, or uh, there wasn't one that was getting the the opportunity. But for the most part, uh, the racing community has embraced the idea of uh, female competitors. Well,
1: oh, because most of them are doing very well when they get their opportunity. Right. Actually, last year, Tim, 2020 was the first year 2000s that didn't have a female driving in the Indy 500. Um, and, and same thing, that was just because one of the normal uh, uh, women who was scheduled to compete ended up not being able to make her way over with uh, the funding she needed and also with some restrictions from the UK. So uh, otherwise, you probably would have had Pippa man in the field this year. But uh, n- nonetheless, I, I think exactly right that you have opportunities for – uh, for minority groups, for for women, and just for these small market teams. I mean, a Dreyer and Reinbold Racing. No, I mean that's not a, a women team, but uh, a, a team that has very very little money uh, compared to a, a Penske or a Ganassi uh, type program. But they can go and make the waves and make it into the field. Uh, those stories end up being just as great, you know, as having your three or four time winners uh, doing some big in the front of the field.
0: Yeah, and those small manufacturers, I shouldn't say, are small my money teams making the indie is a huge benefit for them financially just to actually start the race and get in it uh that itself helps those small teams with their financial situation more than uh most of us probably can understand or realize
1: it would be like tim if we put a hundred dollars down to uh you know at, at any betting station And you have a one out of 10 chance. If you lose, you lose a hundred dollars. But if you get that one time, you just made a hundred thousand dollars. That's about what it comes down to. Except it's not a one in 10 chance. It's probably about a one in a thousand chance uh, with some of these smaller market teams, but they get it done. I mean, you look at uh, another one, just for an example, a Dale coin racing, their top driver uh, this year uh, with Ed Jones in a number 18 car Uh, Dale coin racing is a team that has been around Dale coin, a driver himself. He's been now uh, owning and, uh, and managing teams for 20, 25 years. And they, they get the job done with the strategy. He's just one of the best minds in racing. He has a very, very low budget, but he gets the job done. In the Grand Prix the other week, he had a former F1 driver. And what a great story Romain Gros was uh, to uh, come over after nearly dying in that fiery F1 crash in Bahrain. Comes over to IndyCar, puts it on pole for the Indy Grand Prix, uh, ends up finishing second. Just that right there, can be uh, finishing in that race, gives them enough money to continue without having to worry for the rest of the year, just qualifying their two cars for Indianapolis gives them enough money to work the rest of stage and dry and Rhine bowl racing. Same thing. They care just about the Indy 500. They qualified. If they get top 10, they can do two or three more races because now they have the funding to do so. That's, that, that's kind of the difference between one, the, the race within the race, a race, just right. get in and then the actual race of uh, trying to get uh, into victory lane and kiss the bricks.
0: You mentioned them a couple times in our conversations, talk about the teams and, and their position coming into this 500. Uh, let's talk about Ray Hall and Penske and uh, those two teams. What do you expect out of them? And uh, could we see a surprise uh, uh, showing from either of those two teams uh, this year?
1: Ray Hall looked really strong early in the week, but they're qualifying a, uh, surprisingly, Tim was not. I mean, they have the defending champion, the two-time winner, Takuma Sato. He's starting 15th. Uh, Graham Rahal starting right behind him, uh, at six at 18th. Uh, not a great uh, starting position for him, but he always uh, seems to do a great job of coming up through the field no matter where his starting position is. Uh, and then their third car um, in uh, Santino Ferrucci. he had a nasty crash uh, right before qualifying and uh, hats off to him to be able to even get back out into the car and uh, and put it into the field as solidly as he did so i mean there are three strong cars there but i mean starting 15th 18th and 23rd uh maybe not the the greatest look uh at team this year though they do have uh the honda power which is seeming to be a little bit more of the stronger car uh, race engine at least so far here in may um you mentioned penske penske again also a little disappointing nobody in uh in their crew in the uh, top nine either uh, as I look through the uh, starting lineup, the top Penske car ends up being their rookie, Scott McLaughlin, uh, who only two rookies in the field, Tim, and this guy is not a rookie, let's be honest. He's yeah. a uh, three-time uh, champion in Australian supercars. He's he a force to be reckoned with for sure, um, and they did have really good race pace. Now, uh, the, the one that was really impressive in the final practice was uh, Simon Pagino, who in, in about a 30-minute span – he, uh, track of practice past 10 cars, decided to go back to the field again to try it again, past 10 more cars went to the back past 10 more cars. He did blow uh, in practice, but that's fine. No worries. All these cars will replace their engines, um, before the, uh, the race begins next week. So don't have to worry about, uh, about that, but Penske and Ray Hall, um, they have good race setups. I wouldn't be surprised to see either one of them, uh, make their way through the field, but the, uh, the surprising team in terms of raw pace, uh, mainly because they're a Chevrolet and the only Chevys that made it into the top 10, uh, it's Ed Carpenter racing. And we shouldn't be surprised though. Every year, Carpenter cars are fast at the brickyard. They may struggle points during the year, but during the month of May, you can't beat them. In fact, no one has beaten them here at May this year. Their 20-year-old second-year driver, Renus VK, uh, real name, Re- Renus Van Kamuf, Uh he just goes by VK to make it easy for us uh, here in America. And trust me, uh, commentators, They're appreciative of that. But uh, the the Dutchman uh, won the Grand Prix 20 years old. He's the third different guy this year to win uh, his first race uh, in IndyCar here this season, which is impressive to begin with. He starts third. His uh, teammate and owner, uh, Carpenter, starts fourth. And those two guys have been really fast. Their third car, Connor Daly, starts back at 19th. But he's been at the top or near the top of every single practice session while in race trips. So he's another guy like, I think like Ray Hall or Pagino, I'm expecting to see move to the front. So lots of great, great action from that Ed Carpenter team too. I'd love to see the guy who went to Butler, uh, Butler university right there in Indianapolis, the hometown ah. kid would love to see Ed Carpenter uh, preferably as a driver, but even as a team owner, he's uh, one of the big fan favorites. Everybody's going to be watching for sure. Well,
0: the Carpenter name in Indianapolis 500 is, is quite quite natural. I should say it's been around for a long time and you would expect just that to happen. Talk about maybe one of the foreign teams. I guess we would say that is like McLaren, because that's really more of a, an F1 team in the past right? or continues to be.
1: Yeah. The McLaren F1 team came uh, over in, what was it 2016 with uh, Fernando Alonso 2016, 2017 with Alonso um, as a partnership within the autos was in yeah 2017 he did really well uh ended up uh blowing an engine late in the race otherwise he had a chance to win it they came over as their own program in 2019 and they were that big money team that got bumped from the field you couldn't believe it but it happened well since then they partnered with uh with the uh aero schmidt peterson uh motorsports team so a great partnership Again, schmidt peterson was a team that's been around for about 20 years Uh, one of those low budget teams like a dale coin but they keep getting a little bit better, a little bit better. Then they get this uh, sponsorship with Arrow. They get more money. They get even higher in the charts. Then they make a uh, sponsorship connection with McLaren. And now you see these Arrow guys near the top of the field uh, in each and every race. And that's one of the dark horses I'm keeping my eye on is Pato Award. He's uh, another guy who got his first victory in his IndyCar career earlier this year. And it was on an oval. The doubleheader uh, races at Texas, he finished third in the one race and first in the second race. He's going to be a guy starting 12th, yeah 4 that I'm going to keep my eye on just because he's got the oval experience now in his second year and he's racing very well. He actually missed the field two years ago uh, trying to uh, make it into the field. Uh, he's gotten so much better and so much more experience for one of these international drivers getting used to oval racing and he showed it at the beginning of May down in Texas. He can race on an oval. It's a team that keeps getting better and better that's a a dark horse to keep your eye on him and uh, his teammate, Felix Rosenquist.
0: So what is your uh, position in the stands uh, this time? Normal area or will you be moved because of the uh, pandemic?
1: So they tried to keep everybody as close as possible. And we actually were able to maintain our same section of of seats. Uh, We had, we have 30 seats in our uh, entrance to turn four, the Northwest Vista um, every year. We ended up choosing to use 16 of those 30 seats. Um, and we basically, instead of three rows of seats that we normally get, we got the first two rows, the exact spot, which is really nice. They kept everybody uh, from the sounds of it. I haven't heard of any uh, instances of any big time uh, maneuvering around the track, but uh, we're just glad that we're going to be able to get back in there. Um, be required as long as you're not eating and drinking, which of course there'll be plenty of eating and drinking while you're in the stands anyway, but are we're spaced out we're outdoors and uh knock on wood right now the weather forecast looks to be pretty darn nice about 78 degrees and sunny uh can't ask for a, a much better scenario than that let's just hope it uh hope it stays that way and i think we're going to see some some really really fun racing and, and especially i gotta mention here too tim i mean you, you got two 46 year olds who are up at the front of the field too tony Canon starting fifth elio castroneves is basically his best friend uh right behind him uh starting in eighth two guys uh 40s combined carpenter who's also 40 scott dixon who's 40 you're talking four old guys in the top yeah. eight brian hunter ray is 40 years old that's five guys in the top eight The youth movement of uh, colton herter 21 Renus vk 20 alex Palou 23 24 uh, that's i, I think going to be the fun challenge and i've seen some fun prop bets already the uh the winning age uh, and a half over or under
0: yeah, that would be a that'd be a great uh, prop bet. But more importantly, sounds like experience may play a big role in this uh, in this five hundred this year. Possibly see one of the uh, the oldest winners of the five hundred with that many over forty. Uh, who is the oldest uh, winner? Do you know?
1: The oldest winner would have been Al Unser, I believe, or Bobby Unser may have been older. It's one of the Unser brothers for sure was the uh, the the oldest. Um, but I, I do know that if, I think it's if Elio or Kanan were to win it this year, think about this. One of them would just miss on being the oldest and one of them would just barely make it as the oldest, uh, wow. one way or the other. I'd have, I'd have to double check on that. Uh, but at the same time, the guys starting second and third, Herta and uh, VK would each become the youngest ever winner of the Indy 500. So the, the storylines are, you know, there, there's so many to, to work with that. Uh, we're going to have fun trying to keep up throughout the, uh, the course of the entire race.
0: All right. Give me your, your three favorites coming into this. Who do you think we should be looking for? Not necessarily one, but those who are going to have a the best opportunity before the the beginning of the race. Obviously, race development changes everything. But just give me your idea of about three racers that we can take a look and say, yeah, this these are top five, maybe top ten uh, material uh, cars.
1: Well, let me start by saying this. Last year and the year before, it was very difficult to pass unless you were in the top two or three spots. And from the practices, it looks like you're a lot more deep uh, into the field uh, than we've seen the past few years. So uh, if you had asked me a week ago, I would have said if you're not starting in the first two rows, you don't have a chance to win the race. That is completely thrown out the window now. Um, This is the closest uh, starting field that we've seen in many years, and it's the fastest overall starting field in Indy 500 history. Uh, so lots of speed, top to bottom. If I, if you're saying, give me somebody guaranteed in the top five, there's no way I'm betting against Scott Dixon. There's absolutely no way I don't expect Dixon to be in the top five. Um, now, I mean, I'll, I'll flash back to 2017, where he started first, was uh, running in second during pit stop cycles, and a car crashed in front of him, and he just happened to collect it. Yeah, that could happen. I mean, that can happen with anybody. Uh, right. But if I had to place my money on anybody for for top five, even top three, it'd be tough to bet against Scott Dixon. Um, I, I really like the way I mentioned Regis BK. I love the way he's been racing. Uh, he starts third. That's Rosado, one from last year. Um, uh, I think my number one overall pick out of everybody would be though the middle of the front row. Colton Herta, he's running right now uh, with that uh, with that team. The, the way to his dad manages a race uh, just absolutely impressive at, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, especially. He'd be my number one bet. But the uh, I mentioned the Dark Horse Powder Award to keep my eye on. One other name that we haven't really said yet, and you can't go without saying it, um, also starting in row 10 or in row four, I mean, is the 10th starting spot, Alexander Rossi. Reason being, he's been in this race. This will be his fifth time as a rookie. Uh, his second or third year, he started dead last, made it all the way up to second place at one point. I think he ended up finishing uh, third in that race. Uh, he was up at the front before a penalty. I uh, heard him last year uh, a lot in the, in the lead in the other races, too. Alexander Rossi knows how to get the job done. Again, last year in, in a race where you couldn't pass anybody, he was passing everybody. He was getting to the front and uh, giving some uh, one-fingered salute on the way by at the same time. Ah, I would not be that. surprised whatsoever. Whatsoever, if you see Rossi in, in victory lane, um, and, and mainly, too, Rossi and Herta, I think if one of them win it, they are officially the, the head of this Andretti Autosport team. Uh, I mean, they're basically a 1A, 1B right now, but if, if uh, one of them is to win the 500, they could officially be say, yeah, they're definitely the, the top dog on this team, and, and that makes a big thing not only for you know sponsorship money and everything, but just in terms of team orders the rest of the way through their career. Uh, to to be who's the top dog, who plays second fiddle, uh, you know, e- even though they're very good friends off the track, you know that that has a little bit of a rivalry aspect to it, uh, even within their own team. So uh, that that could be basically what a, an Alanzer Jr. and Emerson Fitipaldi uh, type rivalry was with them uh, back in the uh, early '90s. If it would not surprise me at all if that continues, and if uh, Herder can get a win with Rossi, or if Rossi gets the second one, uh, either way, I think it's going to be some fun battles in that Andretti Autosport camp.
0: Oh, there's no question. It should be a lot of fun to watch. I can't, I'm looking forward to it and it is always on your uh, calendar as a sports fan. There's just no question about it. One of the, the great sporting spectaculars in the world, let alone on Memorial day weekend and a tradition that goes back. Oh, so many years, but more than anything, um, part of me wants to root for Tony Kanan just because of his personality and uh, his bravado to say the least.
1: Uh, and he, he is a fan favorite. I mean, when he, the, during qualifying, when his time went up there at one point that he was the fastest and everybody's screaming their heads off, anytime he makes a pass to get near the end uh, near to lead uh, the entire stands are on their feet, cheering him on. He's just been a fan favorite, mainly because of yeah the, the way he races, but the way he conducts himself has always been uh, a class act. And uh, he, he's racing in the uh, the number 48. Basically he's doing the ovals in the same car that uh, Jimmy Johnson this year, moving from NASCAR, has come in to do the road course races. And uh, that's been a fun little partnership uh, to see how they've helped each other out uh, in learning about each other's sports and about learning about what's going to uh, a fast car uh, as well. Tony Kanon, t- for him to get his second would be, um, I think the only thing that would be more exciting to the Indianapolis racing community than Ed Carpenter winning it, it would be TK winning it.
0: It should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. You have a safe travel out there. Enjoy the race. And uh, let's try to uh, maybe recap it on in a week or two, uh, get back and talk about uh, your experiences at the at the 500 this year and uh, just recap what happened.
1: Absolutely. Sounds like a plan. And uh, we'll, we'll make sure to, uh, to sing loud and clear when we're back home again for you.
0: Nah, I can't wait. Yeah. Got to sing that one loud. I mean, <laughs> I, seriously, back home in Indiana, when they when that comes on this this year, the emotion behind it may be one of the most impressive sporting moments before a, a, an, an actual event that we're going to see uh, in 2021.
1: Oh, for, for sure. I mean, the, the entire, it, again, if you've never seen it, if you've never been a part of it, um, it, it has to be on your bucket list uh, of events to, at some point, go to. But just the the emotions that go through the the pre-race ceremonies during a normal year are crazy enough Tim, you have uh the military laps where you have members of the of the military who go and take their own celebratory lap around the the speedway and literally everybody up on their feet uh celebrating them because it is memorial day first and foremost that's what this uh this whole endeavor is about you get to you know, the, everything with the invocation, with the traditions, the the Purdue marching band that's been there forever. Then you get to uh, the playing of taps, Tim. And there's three hundred, four hundred thousand 400,000 people in there, and it's dead silent. The Snake Pit, which is literally a rock concert, not happening this year, but a rock concert uh, and uh, having probably 30 40,000 people at the concert in the infield, they go dead silent during taps. The silence of taps is as eerie and as awe-inspiring as you'll ever see, brings tears to the eyes every time. And, and then you get to the anthem and back home again. And like you said, the, uh, the extra emotion that that's going to bring this year, and uh, we have had that extra time not being able to get back home again, um, it is going to be something to, uh, something to behold for sure. And I know that 100,000 other people who are just as excited uh, to get back to, and it's going to mean just a little bit more uh, to everybody out there this year.
0: James, thanks again for coming on. Always the best. Safe travels. Can't wait to talk to you next week. Thanks a lot, Tim. My thanks to James Donson again for coming on the podcast. Always great to talk to James, and uh, especially this time of year about the Indy 500. As we turn the page now, let's bring in Coach Donnie Hess of the Des Moines Roosters of the USAFL. We're going to talk some footy with him and talk not just about the us afl and his program in the roosters but we'll also talk about the afl in general and some strategy and some information about the game so really a great conversation really a a fun time i'm glad we were able to to meet up and do this i hope you enjoy it this is coach donnie hess of the des moines roosters it's now time to bring in Donnie Hess, Coach Donnie Hess of the Des Moines Roosters of the Australian Rules football team in the U.S. AFL. I uh, met Donnie online just the last couple of weeks. And uh, as I promised on our last podcast, more AFL talk with you coming your way. And uh, let's just first say hello to Donnie. How you doing, my friend?
2: I am not doing too bad, Tim. It is great to finally meet you, sir. I caught a couple of your episodes with uh, Brian Barrish, Julia Montesano, and Craig Wessels, and I thought, oh, why not reach out and talk to another American that uh, that loves the great sport of footy?
0: Like I said, it's a different type of sport. You, I've uh, been a, a fan for a long time, in and out, actually. I probably told the story more times than necessary, but I was... Uh, I'm 54 years old and I saw it when ESPN first got started and was doing international sports all the time and seen it in the mornings before I went to school and then of course as ESPN grew the international sports kind of faded away what I like to call their in and out of love affair with Australian rules football came and gone throughout the 80s the 90s the early 2000s and even last year and now even this year it's gone away again but it is a unique sport it's a fun sport so let's get a little background on you donnie tom tell me a little bit about yourself
2: oh all right well i was born and raised here in des moines iowa i'm prototypical american i'm not an, an expat that got uh transferred from australia here um for me, it's just I, I ran into the game through my father. My father is a giant sports person. He loves to watch sports. And we had a cable package, a, a lot like you, except for I saw mine on what was called Fox Sports World. So it played rugby. It played cricket. It played Aussie rules, soccer before it started really kind of hold, taking hold here in the States. So I saw it when I was a little bit younger. So unlike many of my American counterparts that get into the game, I kind of saw it a little bit earlier than most. Uh, When I hit high school, unfortunately, the channel disappeared. It was no longer available. And then by the time I was in high school, I was playing basketball, football, kind of athletic. I was an athletic kid when I grew up. And then got into college, still hadn't seen it for a while. And conveniently, in 2009, I was working a part-time job on the east side of Des Moines. And the Australian who helped start the Roosters um, happened to come into my job and uh, wanted some parts for his job. And I noticed the accent, Start uh, chatting with him. And I, I brought up rugby because of the first thing that popped into my head. And uh, he pops up a little bit later in the conversation. He goes, well, we we have an Australian little football team here in town. How'd you like to play? You seem like you're into sport. And I'm like, that, that'd be awesome. I, I'd love to. Unfortunately, that job was running out of business. So I was going to need something to do. So I hopped on in 2009, about three months into the start of the club. And uh, I've been in and or around the club ever since, so it's been kind of a fun love affair. In 2009, I jumped headfirst into the pool of footy with YouTube. ESPN showed the grand final, and I've been pretty much uh, uh, almost a diehard since then.
0: Yeah, it's it's easy to get hooked, and once you uh, allow yourself to do it, it's just a great game period. And, uh, more than anything, uh, how did you get into, uh, you mentioned you got, you, you met a, a an expat from Australia who, uh, started the roosters. Just talk about your involvement there with the U S AFL and how, uh, you evolved from a player to coach. Uh,
2: okay. So the, so we'll do a little background of the roosters a little bit too. In 2009, two brothers who are originally from the Western part of Iowa, um, we were in L.A. and originally got into the game a few years prior. Well, their father, unfortunately, got sick. They decided to come back to be a little bit closer. They met up with the expat, and that's actually how the Des Moines Roosters got started. We are kind of one of the smaller metropolitan areas that has a team. My involvement with the Roosters, I started off as a player because I wanted to play. I got into it. You can't really tell. There's a podcast, unfortunately, but I'm a little bit of a bigger guy, so I'm not exactly the greatest body type when it comes to the sport. It is a little bit more for the leaner person. Now, the Americans, it's a little bit easier to kind of just play the game. Basically, I just my body. I when I played sports, I played sports full max, so I've got a little bit of a back issue, and unfortunately, with the leaning down to pick up the footy different stuff like that my body just really couldn't take it so I retired for a couple of years I I stayed in the background didn't really do a lot and a couple years ago in 2019 the coach at the time wanted to just play he didn't want to coach anymore Um, and he reached out to me he's like hey there's an opportunity for the roosters need a head coach You'd always sounded like you wanted to coach the team. How would you like to do it? I jumped at at it. I I really wanted to try it. I I think Aussie Rules is a very unique sport. Um, It's not like a lot of the sports here in the States where it's play-oriented. It's much more flow-oriented, a lot like soccer. So I thought, I'm up for a challenge. I want to learn something new. So I jumped in. They, They hired me then and there, and I've been the head coach ever since now. Unfortunately, last year, due to some medical reasons uh, i won't go too far into it I, I was not able to coach my team last year i i did a lot of in the background kind of stuff i helped come up with some virtual trainings that i could brought up some skills and skill development when the boys were were doing kick to kick but i have great news is that i i am fully vaccinated and i will actually be able to rejoin my team next tuesday at our, at our next training session so i'm I'm giddy with excitement to get the whistle back into my hand and to be able to help the boys out, and especially considering it looks like we're going to get at least half a season in this year.
0: Fantastic. I'm glad to hear about uh, everything turning your way here recently and uh, uh, continued success, no doubt about that, on, on a personal and a uh, a footy level. Let's talk about the team for a second. Uh, obviously, when I was talking to Brian a few weeks ago, he mentioned that the, you're, you play kind of like a miniature game. Usually it's not the full 20-minute quarters. It's maybe like a 40-minute game or less. Sometimes it's it's not the full complement of players and I can understand that it's it, I mean to get 18 players to play let alone maybe 22 or 36 if you had a full side I mean that's a lot of players uh, not, not just to manage but be able to to commit to it so talk about what size of a playing field you guys have how many players usually are available and uh you know what what type of uh, numbers are you looking at
2: Oh, it it kind of fluctuates. Um, It really just does depend. Each team, it it depends on what kind of field you can get. Uh, Unfortunately, as as you kind of mentioned, it is not easy to get the full length field. Um, So you kind of have to add length sometimes. It depends. Um, We've gotten a field that's probably 30, 40 meters too short. So we just, we bring it in and we take two players off. So instead of playing 18 on 18, we play 16 on 16. We basically just take the wing positions off the field um we actually here in Des Moines normally during normal health situations we do a tennis side tournament called 8035, which is the two intersections that um, intersect here in Des Moines and we do a tennis side tournament on a couple of rugby fields on the western part of town and we bring teams from all over the midwest to come in and kind of play so it really kind of depends on what field we have how many players each team has because when you travel, I mean, this is, we're not getting paid for this. This is purely a love of the game. Like we'll, we'll go up to Minneapolis and if we've got a busy enough weekend, we may only have eight to 10 guys that can go up. Minnesota will give us four or five of their players and we'll play 12, 14s with a couple of guys on the bench. So it really kind of, I think the one thing I have to give the USAFO community a lot of credit for is, is that because we want to play the games as badly as we do, We want to work with each other because we know in the long run, us coming up with 10 guys and you playing 10 on 18, it's not exactly fair. You give us three or four, now we play 14 on 14. At least it's a little bit more, at least it's a little bit fair. And everybody gets a game. And some guys get a little bit more game time than they might not. So it really just kind of depends on the team, how many players are available. Our national tournaments, it's 18 on 18 unless the league depicts differently. Most of the time at our national tournaments or our regional tournaments, it's 18 on 18. It's a regular game. And they try to make the field distance and length as best they can to what you would consider the MCG or the Optus stadium size.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously it's difficult to find uh, a place you can quote, unquote, make an oval that, you know, can be as large as 300 yards and uh, mm-hmm. to end up with the, uh, four goal posts, you know, for the, uh, the behinds and for the goals. So, uh, I'm sure it, it is a challenge along itself. All right. Since you're a coach and I've never had this chance to talk about this, uh, what is the distance between the goal posts, uh, from, uh, the behind to the goal post to, uh, just the space in between, obviously we, we can talk about the rules in a second, but let's talk about just the distance between the, the two posts.
2: If I remember correctly, and, and I, we've, we've mapped out these fields so many times, you think I should have it down in the back of my head. I think it's roughly about seven, seven and a half yards per post. And that's goal post to behind post, goal post, goal post, behind post, goal post. So it's seven yards in between. So it's roughly the entire span is about 21, 22 yards. Again, I don't. Exactly quote me because the meter to meter to feet and yards meter to feet sometimes can get a little, get a little interesting sometimes uh but that's if i remember correctly it's, it's roughly about seven it's roughly about seven yards
0: i was always trying to figure out that distance i kind of figured it had to be close mm-hmm. to that range and uh as you mentioned uh obviously the rest of the world uses the metric system we here in the united states still uh use a standard system that is uh, antiquated and, and long gone but uh it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon so it is what we deal with so when you're looking at playing the game now again i enjoy watching it i see some of the strategy but i don't mm-hmm. always understand it so i have to just break it down to some mm-hmm. simple questions True coach i'm going to take advantage of this Is a pick play illegal can you block someone out of the way
2: depends on how sneaky you want to get um i know if you if you watch some of the th- if you watch some of the pros they do it as Best to inconspicuous as they possibly can, just because it's a good way to kind of rub your defender if you have a trailing defender. Again, a lot like basketball kind of is, right. you want that trailing defender. If you stick a body into him, as long as you're not moving and not in- initiating the contact, you could probably get away with it. You just got to be really careful of not making it obvious. Like if you're standing in an area, let's say a ruck contest. So the ball the ball goes up and, and your ruck wants to tap it to a, you're one of your midfielders is trying to get a run so he can get it and bomb it into the, the, the 50. What you might do is you might have one of your other midfielders take three steps towards the ruck contest and stop. So then he's in position, he can still play the ball. And then that moving midfielder can run right off his hip or right off his shoulder blade. Thus creating kind of a pick without it being it. Specifically, you can't do, you're not supposed to, if you're outside of five meters, if you're close to the ball, you can shepherd, which is basically what I equivalent to as a basketball box out. You can mm-hmm. keep your teammate from getting tackled, which is really the best thing to do. So most of the times you're going to see like pick play type of thing. You're going to see it in a ruck contest where there's a lot of people in a small area where the footy is.
0: Yeah, I mean, as I watch this as it gets, it seemed like it was never available. I'm like, forever from, I'm beginning because, man, why don't they just run some picks and screens and and, and create some space mm-hmm. to uh, to uh, make a pass, you know, with a kick or uh, a handball, long handball type scenario? And says obviously. Mm-hmm. If I'm thinking about it and they're not doing it, means it's probably illegal.
2: They, they try. I, I, I've seen some tactics. I, I know that there's one, one of the things on the Watch AFL app, there, there's a show called AFL 360. And right, right now, Richmond is being, is being kind of exposed a little bit for kind of doing that. And they were showing basically a forward on forward where one would run towards the defender and basically stop. And then they'd run him off which technically since it's more than five meters off the ball is illegal, it's an illegal contact should be a turnover, but they're doing it in a way that the referees aren't either. The referees aren't seeing it or it's not egregious enough that they're, they're calling free kicks. So, so I know it's kind of, it's kind of a perfect question at this time, because it is kind of become a little bit of a a talking point, especially in some of the media circles right nowadays.
0: Yeah, it's, it's no question. It's, it's an interesting part of the game. One of the things I've also noticed, it seems to be a strategy, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit with me, um, where it seems the, e- the best play maybe is to go up the middle, but that's usually taken away where you have to go wide, either left or right, and it seems to be going to the outside of the oval, mm-hmm. away from the midfield. Uh, is that typical, or is that just good defense?
2: It's a combination of both. Some team some teams like keeping it towards the boundary because if you can't get a mark, um, it's the furthest away from the from the goal, because of, because it say say on a kicking, okay, so a team kicks it behind and you bomb it down the middle, well, if the defense if the defending team that doesn't have the footy in the first place. Well, Spoils the ball back inside the 50, if somebody crumbs it, they teams what they try to do is they try to bomb it down the wing almost near the boundary line. So then if somebody spoils it, which is to keep it from being marked, sorry, I, I technical terms, I, I apologize if I say something you don't know. Please stop me and let me know if I do. If they spoil it and it goes out of bounds, well, at least you gain 50-60 meters when the next throw in and at least the ball's further away from your defensive goal. So it's harder for the other team to score. If the ball is marked, then what you will, a lot of times, what you'll see, and you can watch this the next time you watch is One of the first things when that guy catches the mark, the first place he looks is in what we call the corridor or the middle of the field, which is the center circle, the center square. They want to go there because if they go there, that opens up the entire field for the next pass, where if that gets taken away, then they got to either put it down the line to a contest, two guys even, nobody is at an advantage, or you can do what they call a swing, which is to kick it backwards to your teammates to then go to the other side of the field, hoping that if your uh, midfielders and forwards move it to the other side of the field, they'll get open because if they sprint, they're going to get there across the field and down the other side, so it just really kind of depends on the team. I, I, there's some teams I've noticed, especially with the new rules this year, they are bombing it down the middle to a one-on-one contest. And if the guy marks it, well, now they're halfway down the field, they turn up and the forwards now have tons of room to lead. And you've got streaming defenders and midfielders up. So if they want to, they can handball it. Now you're on the run to bomb it in for, for a shot on goal. So it's, it really is kind of a tactical thing. I know a lot of teams nowadays run zone defenses to kind of take away sections to force teams to kick it to a contest down the line, which is a lot harder because if it's even up, then it's either a mark or it's going to be spilled. And then we got to get the footy and then we kind of see who gets it, and which way it goes. So, Oh yeah. Well, this... that, that kind of makes sense.
0: Oh, it does. It makes total sense. Uh, and it, it's just something that, you know, for those who, I hope are watching the game along with me uh, on my podcast. And I've been talking about it for about four years now. <laughs> it is, you know, something that they should look for, something to understand and uh, to talk about uh, the game. Because what's unique about this game is the amount of players, how how much action there actually is, and how the ball movement happens. So if you can gravitate a person to understand those basics then following the game is pretty easy and understanding mm-hmm. what's going on i mean just like many americans when they first hit it's total chaos they have no clue mm-hmm. i mean it was like myself i mean the first time i seen it as i heard oh, stay tuned for australian rules football and i'm like oh cool you know football uh, not knowing what I was in store for and my jaw dropping to the ground when I see him dribble a football and run into open spaces, and as you like to say, bomb the kick downfield and a player jumping on someone's back, making the catch, quote unquote, the mark and then being able to, uh, you know, make a uh, kick for the goal. And uh, the first time you see it, your eyes just, you know, you're, you're amazed that this is an actual game and how it's played. And then you see the endurance that this game takes. And then you recognize the athletes that they are playing and uh, what it takes because – this is one of the longer games in sports. I mean, when you're talking 20-minute quarters that stops before play uh, to come from out of bounds or after a goal on a mark, uh, this you know those 20-minute quarters are actually around 20, 25 minutes, if not longer sometimes. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's an endurance game that it really challenges, I think, those who play soccer, probably understand it better than anybody, as a game that's consistently in movement or in flow, as you mentioned earlier.
2: Yeah, it really is one of those where it's like as I started to play, you realize it, you're you're kind of you're almost a cross country runner mixed with a rugby player mixed with a soccer player because there's so many different crazy antics because again, it is totally endurance because you're running 20 25 minutes now. You do have rotations a lot like a lot like hockey where you, you one in one off um, but it, it is it's not one of those where the most professionals, they only have four on the bench. Now, the USAFL, we have unlimited what we call rotations or substitutions. So for us, it really isn't as much of an endurance because you could run for five minutes, be absolutely exhausted. You can go out and take a break. right? Wait for five minutes, get your breathing back, and then you're back on the field. Where in Australia, they've only got four guys on the bench. So for them, plus they also have what they call rotation limits. Currently it's at 75. So in the entire game, they can only switch places with a player on the field 75 times. So it does for them even more become an endurance thing, because if you get to two minutes in the game and you're out of rotations, the guys are on the field have to finish the game. So it's a training is, is sometimes interesting because you have to balance the skill set, which is, quite interesting with the kicking because it isn't like american football like most american punters we think the ball's got to be kicked high Well, this you got to pass it 15 meters and then you can catch and have a free kick where you caught the ball to pass it to a teammate so the kicking style is completely different you're basically dropping it parallel to the ground uh so it's a little it's so it's alien so many americans when you first teach them how to kick it, they, it takes them a while to get the mechanics if they're not a soccer player because it is such a foreign uh, type of maneuver to kick the footy with a drop punt.
0: Yeah, it's it's similar to those who have ever tried a drop kick. It's not the same. It's similar too, mm-hmm. in the sense that you're letting go of the ball and then making it. It's not like like you mentioned in American football, many punters will hold the ball almost to the point where the leg is going to meet it. And as you said, well, that's because Mm -hmm. the game is about hang time, not just distance. It's about, you know, setting it deep. I still think that still may work, but obviously it's not how it's taught and it's not how it's uh, done in Australia or in the game. Uh, I'm not sure if that's illegal or not. It's just a style. Uh, Obviously you see a lot of different kicking styles just because of a individual. Now the top players, are like soccer players; they can use both feet very equally, and that's that's uh, an amazing thing to watch. Mm-hmm. And then you don't see that, you know, in of course in American uh, kicking, or either as a place kicker or a, a punter in football, or you, know, you may see that in in rugby. But again, rugby's not a um, a well played sport here in America. It's played in spots, it's played in regions, but not necessarily has the coverage and the the fan base that you have with the with the top four or five games in in america
2: yeah it is one of those where we are a well-kept secret um i i can't tell you how many times that i walk around with my hat that i have currently which is for our club and it, it says des moines roosters on it and i can't tell you how many times i have people go what are the des moines roosters and the fun part is the explanation because the first thing almost everybody asks, and, and, and if you ask most Americans that love the sport, first question we get asked is, is it rugby? And I, I don't want to come off condescending, but my first response usually is, did I say rugby? Yeah. And I don't, and I, and I try not to say it meanly because I know it, it is kind of, it is, but it, it really is. I'm like, it is, it is completely not rugby, it, it, it has rugby quality. But it is it is not rugby and my, my favorite explanation that i tell most people i said it's rugby and soccer had a mutant child for me because it really is this oddball sport um the crazy part about it is it's just weird we're slowly growing i know on facebook we've started a group called 45,000 where we're trying to get five thousand players uh playing aussie rules here in the states we're up to 50 clubs now um so we're having a bunch of we're having a bunch of fun trying to teach as many people as we can but the one thing I got to give the Fox Sports, the Fox Sports networks now picking up the games is really helping us because we're getting more engagement of people randomly tweeting, "I like this Australian rules football. I wish it was here," and then to see how many Americans that are. Or connected to the sport tweeting them letting them know hey there's a league here in town hey here's a list of all the clubs here in the states see if one's close to you we'd love to have you we'll teach you we'll we'll bring you in like one of our own and and to see them embrace it is always awesome
0: yeah so uh, let's talk about uh just the afl in general uh, that's going on you know we're i believe round 10 coming up uh this year uh talk about It's It's so fast. You don't realize how fast the season goes. I have a saying here in Ohio. I cover high school Hmm. football and uh, foot basketball and some of the other sports and football we have a saying here and among the media it's the fastest 10 weeks of the season and it's just the fastest 10 not 10 weeks of the season it's 10 weeks of the year it just you know it starts in august and next thing you know it's it's october 31st and we're headed towards the playoffs and you're like Mm -hmm. how is this possible seemed like yesterday i was wearing shorts watching watching practices and now i'm bundled up and you know hoping that the the press box has a heater I say the same thing about the AFLW. It's just so fast. I mean, that 10 weeks just blows by so fast. And then you get right into the, the men's competition. Here we are already 10 weeks in, uh, last year was such a a unique scenario with the break that happened and that it it made it feel like a much longer season than it was. Uh, let's talk about who who are the teams that you, uh, ended up, uh, bragging for. Let's use that term. And, um, let's uh report yes and uh i mean maybe some of your the players that uh, turn you onto the game
2: uh, okay so i am th- this will be this will be fun for you tim you may not like me too much after this i am a sydney swan supporter um, ah, i don't I, have a problem I, I, with that at all well we our, our team our teams if i saw correctly you're a collingwood magpie supporter which uh, i'll
0: explain which that here in a minute
2: unfortunately unfortunately this year has not been one of your, one of your marquee years to, to hang your hat on Um, For me, the Sydney Swans, how I got into them, it's kind of a combination of a couple of things. As I got into the sport in 2009, I really kind of went down the YouTube wormhole, which is always so much fun for many people. (laughs) And I kept seeing two highlights that just always drug me in and I always wanted to see. And they are both from the 2005 season for the Swans. One is basically an elimination final where they played the Geelong cats and one player, Nick Davis kicks four goals in the fourth quarter to help the Swans come back from an 18 point deficit for 18 or 20 point deficit to beat the cats, knock them out and to move on to the preliminary final of the next week. And then the other highlight was also in that same 2005 season in the grand final, when Leo Berry takes a pack mark, just before the final siren to help Sydney win their first premiership in 72 years. It was the longest ever drought ever in the AFL slash VFL ever. And I guess for some weird reason they always those highlights just, they brought me in. I don't know what it was. Maybe there with the Nick Davis one, the crowd going absolutely bananas when he kicks his fourth goal to give him a two point lead with like 10 seconds left on the clock. Like to see the fans lose their minds was absolutely just, it, it enthralled me. And then when I finally thought, you know what, I got to pick a team. I, I, I can't just watch this. I have to pick a team In 2012, I watched the grand final and it's Sydney and Hawthorne. Sydney has this game style that I love They're a physical hardy, kind of Midwestern style team. A lot like what I'm used to from, from my teams here in Iowa that I support. Um, they were just a gritty tough physical team. They laid a ton of tackles. They weren't a superstar team. They really played a team style of game. And I fell in love with it. Like I, absolutely loved it that their nickname is the bloods because of the blood-stained jerseys so i just i fell in love with it so in 2016 i became an international member so i send money to the club and i get free stuff in fact you can't see it on the podcast but i just got a my membership after ah, the membership excellent. water bottle this year which is and you get a hat every you get a hat every year which has your membership and the year it does you'll get scarves different stuff like that so for me it's an investment in the club because I've fallen in love with it. And I, have just, so I became a Sydney Swan supporter, full fledged international member in 2016. And as I've said to many people, I've, I've never looked back. I've, I have grabbed on to the Swans with gusto. They haven't won a flag since I've become a member. That's fine. They're, they're a younger team this year and they're kind of playing a little bit better footy than I was originally expecting
0: one of my uh internet friends or footy friends I should say and uh been so blessed to have her come on the podcast a few times uh Gemma Bastiani, who uh covers the AFLW very well mm-hmm. and and actually the AFL too um i reached out to her a few years ago and uh i didn't have a team i was just kind of like ah you know I, i'm i'm media like i don't need a team i'll just root for mm-hmm. uh you know a good game and and hope for you know, that type of scenario and, and who cares who wins. It's not important to me. And I had that attitude for a long time and uh, talking to her and a few others says, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. I'm like, no, no, no. You don't understand. This is the way I've been for the last 20 years. Cause when I started covering sports, you kind of, you have your favorite teams, but in the most part, you try to be unbiased as possible. So mm-hmm. I kind of got that, that grip into me and, then uh, I was talking to her and she was like, yeah, you got to pick a team. I'm like, well, yeah, I don't know. And I says, at the time, Collinwood was kind of up and coming again and was doing well. And they had Mason Cox and I was talking about her, him with her and this and that. And she goes, well, you like Mason Cox. So, you know, why don't you be a, a, a Collinwood supporter? And I'm like, yeah, why not? You know, and that's basically how it happened. It had no, no realms, no reason uh-huh. behind it. Now, here's where I actually could have been a Swans fan. And I I don't think I I told this story. Uh, This was uh, very simple. Mm -hmm. I became a fan of Australian music many years ago. Uh, I was a big NXS fan. I was a huge Jimmy Barnes fan when no one knows about him in America. Uh, ACDC, you go on and on and on back in the, you know, late or early 80s up to like 85. uh, There was a lot of bands from Australia that came over and, and had one hits or two, you know, some minor hits over here and, I became, you know, quite enthralled with some of the music down there. Well, as time went by, being a, a Jimmy Barnes fan, I found out about Cold Chisel, and and in the process, I started following them. And then Ian Moss was a few years ago was uh, at the Anzac Entertainment, and it was, of course, on YouTube, and that you find mm-hmm. it. At the time, I was kind of like in between what I was going to do. Thus, uh, he came on and uh, he, I forget who was who was the game and probably was a Collingwood game or something. I don't remember. It was one of the people who we were interviewing before, you know, after his performance or before his performance goes. So who are you bragging for today? And he looked right in the camera and went, "Sydney Swans. And I, I started laughing. I says, there's a guy who knows what he's doing because, you know, he didn't care about these two teams and it's not his team. And then. Being a Barnsey fan that I am, he always says, you know, go Swans and stuff like that. And for the life of me, it just went right over my head. And being a big fan of Jimmy Barnes and I, Ian Moss and the whole gang of them coaches, I should have been all flat out. I should have been a, a Swans fan, but because of fate and an American, I became a Collingwood fan. So I'm a black and white guy with the uh, following the bird. That's you know that supposedly attacks people from the uh, from the trees and dives on them. So uh, <laughs> that's that's the long story there. So, you can find uh,
2: a lot of really you can find a lot of really yeah you can find a lot of really good videos of magpies swooping on people. It is it's absolutely um, there. There are some funny funny videos. But uh, another one I don't know if you actually have seen this, but uh, I had to laugh after I had become a swan supporter. Um, my wife is a big uh, late night TV person, and she loves Conan O'Brien. Oh, okay. Um, if you go on YouTube, you can actually find a video where Conan O'Brien goes over to Australia, and he actually goes and trains with the Sydney Swans, and it is absolutely hysterical.
0: I think I've seen that. Yes. He talks
2: with he talks with Nick Davis, the guy I was telling you about, with the with the four goals late in the game, and it's absolutely just comedy gold like I laughed so hard because he, he has a point where they try to teach him how to do the specky mark where you jump on somebody's back and one of the players is wearing it and he looks at Nick Davis with the straightest face and goes who's the guy that walks around looking like a jar of mustard and it's it's just absolute comedy like I laughed so hard watching it so I, I always get a kick out of that But um, in fact, actually, we actually, I actually just actually had uh, on my podcast that I do because this last year on the podcast I'm connected to, I actually had Gemma Bastiani hop on as a co-host for my AFLW. uh, review for a round and she was absolutely awesome and she's the best did she tell you she's a swan supporter too
0: oh yeah i've known that for a few years now yeah uh and and like i said she could have led me down that road she had the opportunity and (laughs) 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 but you know what give her credit she kind of she kind of let it go to my own decision and uh you know uh, and, a, and a really quick conversation that is somewhere on one of my past episodes, you'll hear how I says, "Okay, well, I'll be a Collinwood supporter," and that's how it became uh, known uh, that I. I and I, like I said, I I accept it uh, with all the baggage that comes with it. And uh, but there's some good and news I, on that level. I've too. said,
2: and I and I've said it too. Is, is if I if I catch an American that's like, "Hey, what team should I support?" I always go. I, I kind of go, what are your teams in America? And then kind of go off what you like. Like, I've I've had a couple of times where I've had friends that are like, well, I want to become an Aussie Rules fan. What team should I support? And I go, okay, what are your favorite colors? What do you like in a footy team? Do you like history? Do you like new? And I kind of, I've kind of basically kind of come up with a little bit of a kind of formula of how I've, how I've helped people. And most of the teams that I've given people, they've actually run with and actually thoroughly enjoyed because I try to connect what they like for like sports here. Like if you like a gritty tough team that doesn't have a lot of superstars, I tend to go with some of the clubs that maybe they don't have a lot of superstars, mm-hmm. but they play the style that matches the personality, right. which is a lot of fun because sometimes they fall in love with that team and you, they just look at you like, Oh my gosh, you're so right.
0: Oh yeah. It's that's what's I think so special about just the league and its fans. And his supporters, as they like to say, it's they're so passionate about their their club, and that passion runs deep, and it is forever mm-hmm. passion. And you know, you can get into arguments about different things and who is the rival and why you hate them. All of it's fair, you know. It's all fair game. It's all uh, in good in good jest most of the time. I I get a kick out of it. Yeah, it, it's been a uh, it's been a fun uh, journey. I. I picked that out of the blue basically and had no clue about the history of the team had no clue about some of the controversies of the players in the team. But uh, you know, like they tell you, you can't change once you, s- you select your team. So you got to you got to stick it through. Uh, like I said, I should have been a Swans fan deep down uh, because of all that other connections. And I never gave it a thought. I just made a decision because of uh, Mason Cox. So I'm a Coxie guy, even though he's not even on the uh, on the top squad right now, uh, unfortunately. but uh, you know what? Colin was in trouble anyway, so it doesn't matter if he's there or not. in my opinion, they're just are just a uh, well, let's just put a side in transition and I don't know if they know what transition they want to go
2: in. Yeah, uh, not to go off of it. Have you heard about uh, what happened to Coxie at training a couple of days ago?
0: Yes, I did. yeah. He was uh, uh exactly. I can't remember. I just know he went to the hospital, but uh, checked out okay.
2: Yeah, he. Uh, I, I don't know what happened, but I think it's something in training, and he got hit in the throat. And that's I just why. Right, they sent him right. to the hospital. Yep, yep. He got hit in the hit in the throat during a training drill. I don't know if it was an elbow or a footy or what. All I know is they took him to the hospital as precaution, just to be safe. They were pretty sure he was fine, but they they wanted to be safe and. And when it comes to Collingwood this year, I think they're caught in no man's land right now because they're off season. They move Stevenson, they move Chalor, and really, I don't know if they really wanted to go full fledged rebuild this year. And Buckley kind of approached the season like we can still go for the finals, and now they're caught in no man's land because they haven't been really playing the kids to to kind of let them start to rebuild a little early. And they're not really not fighting for the finals because the first two or three weeks he was sending out an older squad, not as many youngsters. So it's really, I think, I think Collingwood really needs to embrace now. They need to go a little bit younger, give a few of these younger players some run, let them get blood, blood yes. them out, let them get plenty of experience. Because in the long run, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to fill guys' spots like Pendlebury, like Sidebottom. I the biggest question will be is what do they do with Jordan Ngowi now because. Do they re-sign him? Do they try to move him? There's there's a lot of still kind of up in the air. I think Darcy Moore, I know, is a sore spot for many Collingwood fans. I never liked to move forward. I thought he should have stayed because he's an all-Australian halfback. He's was never a solid forward, shall we say. So I, I think they're a little bit of their own demise as well unfortunately.
0: Yeah, and the whole club itself is in transition. And that's you know from top to bottom. So it it needs new leadership and they're in the process of adding people to their to their board and we'll see where what direction it goes. Obviously, you know, I think it takes time. I they were basically in a what in sports I call uh Sally Cap hell. Uh, they got caught mm-hmm. they had to make moves. Uh, to make it work they did and then if you're going to make those type of moves i agree that the the correct move is is a a complete tear down and a rebuild and suffer through a couple seasons with the young guys and let them get the experience let them get the the bruises that come with it and move forward and and look at sydney swans a perfect example the last two years three years they really you know took it took some big lumps but this season they've been really a surprise team a, a team that has uh, you know challenged and uh, i think is just on the verge of uh, possibly making the the finals this year and, and doing well and quite honestly they have one of my favorite players to watch he's a veteran he's a, he's a leader he uh, was missed last year because of injuries uh we're talking about buddy franklin I mean, when I started watching the game a few years ago, he caught my eye right away as an athlete, as a player and as a leader. And without a question, I, I kept saying, I don't know much about this game, but this guy would be the best player on the field just because of the way he really conducts himself. And when he gets in space and he has an opportunity to make a, a decision, if it's either to pass the ball or to uh, you know, try to strike a goal. He doesn't usually make bad decisions. And that's what, to me, is, is his value. You with know, little knowledge I have of the game, but I just absolutely, each week, uh, watch Sydney for that one reason only, is to see what Buddy Franklin can do.
2: The thing with Buddy is, is that he, he could be a history maker in a way that I think a lot of present-day fans will never see again. Um, Buddy Franklin is something around 42 goals away from the 1,000-goal club kicking 1000 goals in the AFL. And I agree with what many people said. He's probably going to be the last ever to do it unless they really change the rules to open up the game even more, to be able to let those big forwards kick Mm -hmm. goals. I mean, in the olden days you had, you had big forwards that were kicking bags of six and seven every week. So, so buddy is kind of this phenomenon. He's, he's the last ever player to kick 100 goals in the regular season as well whether that'll ever happen again unfortunately Taylor Walker was on the the road to it from Adelaide Crows but unfortunately he kind of slowed down and then he was rested last week but yeah Buddy is an absolute marvel he's I mean he moves so quick for a man his size He's, he's had trouble with soft tissue injuries with knees, calves, and different stuff like that. I've, I've been relatively pleasantly surprised. He's been as healthy as he has this year. Um, he will play this weekend against Frio, which will be quite interesting because the last time he played at Optus Stadium, he kicked seven. Um, okay. But that was 2017. So it's, it's been a little bit of time since uh, since Buddy has made his mm-hmm. steps onto the Optus field ground and when it comes to Sydney I completely agree with you these previous two seasons they have really kind of they let their youngsters play and this year some of their youngsters have really stepped up they had a really good draft class this last year drafting three guys in the top 15 who many people said is three top 15 guys all in one draft uh two from their academy and then the Number four overall, pick a kid from Western Australia, Logan McDonald, who had been playing against men in the Western Australian Football League or, or Waffle. So I, I think this season could be good. Whether they make the finals or not, I'm not going to. I want them to. Great. But if they don't, I'm not going to be too offended because I think many Swans fans that you asked, we weren't expecting finals. We were expecting seven, eight wins. They, they move up on the ladder from 16th to where they finished last year. But when they started off 4 and 0 a lot of swans fans were just baffled because we were not expecting that because we had brisbane in our first game and richmond in our fourth game we were not expecting that it just was not on our radar we were expecting two and two at the at the at the best so for us to start off 4 and 0 and to start for the swans to start off so well i think a lot of us are still kind of we're riding this this wave of positive momentum that i don't think we were expecting this year
0: and uh, maybe the biggest surprise in my opinion is Melbourne Melbourne and how well the demons have been playing and at top of the ladder, uh, not a, uh, I mean, last year there, I think they were the most disappointing team. I mean, you could see them fade late in the, in the season and you can see them not really achieve their, their potential. And all of a sudden this year, they seem to be getting the breaks. They seem to be making the plays when they need to. And You know, they're collecting the Ws, and that's – in every sport, that's what it's all about. Yeah,
2: exactly. This Melbourne team has come out of nowhere. I think a lot of people were expecting them to just barely make the finals if they make it because in 2018, they made the finals, got to the prelim, and got absolutely destroyed by West Coast. And then in 19 and in 2020, they really just never clicked. It just never really – went the way they had expected or the way they wanted many demons fans were starting to get frustrated with simon goodwin their coach because they saw max gone they saw patraca they saw oliver they saw so many talented players on their list and they weren't playing up to expectations and this year they just everything has clicked everything has started off so well they are 9-0 i i you probably saw this fact the last Four times the Melbourne Demons have went 9-0 and in a nine-game stretch. They have won the Premiership. They've won the flag all four times. So there's a lot of Demons fans that are starting to go, could this be number five? There's a lot of Demons fans that are starting to kind of go, is this it? We don't know. There's still so many games still left to be played. And unfortunately, the Demons are known for fading. They've, they've, they've made – They've made great starts to start a season and then faded in previous yeah. years. I know at one year in 2016 or 17, the North Melbourne Roos went nine and O to start the year. They barely made the finals and got in an eighth and were knocked out in the first elimination finals. So being nine and O is not a guarantee that you're a flag contender. But I think a lot of demons fans see that this is a very well constructed team. They're the best defense in the entire AFL. They have So many, they they, they have the point now where they have players that have been playing on their first team that are being dropped because one of their better players is now back healthy. They've got selection problems, as they say, which I think for most coaches, it's like, we'll go to the American sport. It's like having three running backs that can all run for a hundred yards in every game. It's a substitution problem you want because that means your team is playing so well. You've got to find these guys time on the field. So... If I'm Simon Goodwin, I'm doing everything I can to keep this going because he has absolutely found it. I don't know what, but he's found it for this season. And he comes into this round with a chance to go 10-0, and 0, which will then set up probably what everybody says is the most marquee game of the round in two weeks, the Western Bulldogs and the Melbourne Demons on Friday night footy. That could be 10-0 and 0 versus 9-1. and 1.
0: Yeah, it's going to be a great matchup. There's no question about it. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. There's no question about it. Or can might get up in the middle of the night, but it can be done.
2: Those 4.50 a.m. wake-ups, especially, are <laughs> sometimes hard. But they are worth it when you get a game like that. In fact, this week's yeah. game, tomorrow morning's game, is just as good. You have Richmond going up to the Gava to play Brisbane, and Brisbane is absolutely on fire right now. Brisbane has a lot of injury issues in, the me- in-, in their midfield, but they scraped out a game against GWS, which was on FS1 last week. I got to give FS1, they picked the best game of the round, and they – added on the fs1 which i thought was absolutely outstanding
0: yeah no anytime we can get coverage here in america that's it's, it's a wonderful thing uh not just for that matchup but for the sport in general donnie talk about your roosters what is the colors of your your team what is your your jumper look like
2: okay the des moines roosters um, when, we, when we first made it out the easiest description I was told is we basically are Chicago Bulls red and black we have our own individual little uh, a jersey it is a it was it was done originally by a, a former player who now actually resides in Perth western Australia and it is a very detail-oriented rooster our our jumpers nowadays are a Kind of striped kind of like Adelaide crows with the stripe at the base, the the white or red top we actually have reversible jumpers and then our logo on the on the chest plate. Um, we are a mostly American squad we we, we have very few Americans and uh, very few Australians that find their way to Iowa unfortunately, so it is, <laughs> it is rather hard sometimes, so we are we're kind of an anomaly. We are an American based team. We have mostly Americans. Like I said, I'm an American that coaches, which I think surprises some of our Australians when we, when we play them that an American is coaching the team, but I I love coaching. It's been just a passion of mine and I I love this sport. It has just been so much fun to learn. I don't know all of the, the great tactics. I mean, I'm not a tactical genius. I'm not sitting here like, Demer Hardwick or, or Beverage or John Longmire, the coaches in the AFL. I'm not thinking of these unique strategies. I just kind of like, I try to put my best players in positions for them to be successful. And uh, it's, it's worked out well for the first years. And I, I cannot wait to get started again.
0: Yeah. It starts again next week for you, correct?
2: Yep. Cannot wait to hit training. I, mm-hmm. I'm so excited. And from what I hear from my players, I've got four new coming in
0: excellent excellent so just real quick lay out your your potential schedule and uh, what what looks I had here for the roosters
2: well the um, right now we're still kind of in kind of scheduling phase the one thing about the USAFL is is a lot of communications amongst presidents and clubs to kind of hey we want to play this day and this day would you be interested in either of these? okay yes we're interested okay where do we want to play do we want to play at your place or do we want to play here like right now the only things that are cemented in place is our mini regional which will be in madison wisconsin for us which most likely will be madison minnesota chicago and us in madison on august 14th um specific place i, am, I that's still kind of tbd and then the national tournament has been relocated from California to Austin, Texas. And that is in, I think it's the second week of October. I think it's like the 15th and 16th. As of right now, are the only two set in stone. We're in communication as we speak for a couple of games in July where I think we're going to play into city, more active clubs uh, the had players, but not like a ton. In fact, Kansas city's guy that's got their team got back going has been playing with us the the last two seasons because his club is kind of nobody wanted to there. They didn't have enough to play. So he was actually playing with us. Um, I think we'll probably find a way to play Minnesota right now. We just don't have dates yet. We're still kind of kind of hashing those out because we really got the go ahead for games in the last month or so. All
0: right. Well, Hey, best of luck this year. Enjoy your, your voyage as into the season and what it would it come. Stay in touch with us, let us know what's going on. If you ever got something to promote, let me know. We'll get you on the the podcast and uh, and give us an update on the Roosters. How's that?
2: That will be awesome. And, and I would say, Tim, you got a couple not too far from you. And then I would say, if you ever got the shot, if, if you could figure it out, um, if you can find your way to Austin, Texas for nationals, it is worth it to be able to see what. Basically up to five fields of footy at one time for two days is absolutely awesome for a footy head. So um, I would say if you can can figure that out to where you can get to Austin, Texas for nationals this year, uh, please come on down. I think you'd absolutely enjoy it.
0: Well, I can't promise anything, but it is something to uh, definitely mark on the calendar and hope for the best. Donnie, I want to thank you again for reaching out to me and for uh, making your time here available to come on the podcast. Like I said, stay in touch. Let us know what's going on. And uh, we'll keep everyone abreast here on Radio MVP. Thanks again, Donnie.
2: No problem. You have a good evening.
0: My thanks again to Donnie Hess for coming on the podcast. Had a great time talking to him and talking footy with him uh, this past week. All right, well, this is about the end of tonight's podcast. I once again want to thank both James Dawson and Donnie Hess for appearing. And I promise you, Anthony will be back next week. It's just our schedules have been kind of off-center the last two weeks. But he will be back, and I'm sure. He'll have a lot to say. So I can't wait for that. I want to thank all of you for listening. We've been getting a great response to Radio MVP recently. So please continue to download. As I like to tell everybody, remember to tell your family, friends, and enemies about Radio MVP. Till the next time we speak, have a great day, everyone.